Hello to all of our listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Cause. It's a great day here. I want to thank our fantastic hosts, Ariva and Microsoft, for supporting us and thousands of nonprofits every day. I'm here with my co-host, Jay Fisk. Jay, it's great to be here with you, buddy. Thanks, David. Always good to be with you as well. Please let me introduce Joe McDonough to all of our listeners out there. I want to share that Joe is an inspiration to all of us. Having started the Be Positive Foundation as a tribute to his son, Andrew, his organization has raised millions of dollars for childhood cancer research. The Be Positive Foundation works with over 80 colleges and universities across the country, stretching from New York University to the University of Delaware, who specifically since its inception 15 years ago has raised over $14 million alone. They've partnered with students to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars within days through their 12 hour dance marathon events, not to mention the 5Ks and other exciting events they're part of. They're a fundraising powerhouse on a very important mission to make a difference in children's lives and to find a cure. Thank you for being here, Joe. Thank you very much for having me. It's my honor. Joe, could you share with our listeners the story of why you started Be Positive Foundation and tell sure. us about your son, Andrew? I had what I thought was the perfect life for me and my wife. Back in 2007, my wife, Chris, and I, we had two very healthy uh, high school kids. Allie was a junior in high school and Andrew was a freshman. And Allie and Andrew were as close as could be. Um, and as a parent, what more could you want? And our weeks were typically busy with sports and school. And, and that last week in January, 2007, Andrew had off from school on Monday and he went skiing. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, he went to personal training sessions for speed, agility, and conditioning. And he worked out with college athletes. On Friday, he had his high school dance. On Saturday, he helped his travel soccer team win a Pennsylvania State Championship. Less than 48 hours later, we were at our local children's hospital thinking that Andrew had appendicitis. It turns out he was diagnosed with leukemia. Hmm. And very shortly thereafter, he went into septic shock, which is like an infection bomb going off in your body. And while Chris, Allie, and I are standing at next to Andrew's bed in the ICU, the unthinkable happened as if this wasn't unthinkable enough. The color, the life went out of Andrew as he went into cardiac arrest. They, they removed us from the room and we watched through the little tiny panes of glass in the PICU room, the pediatric intensive care room, as they just started pounding on him and brought equipment in and people in. And every time the door would open, we would scream into Andrew to cheer him on so he would hear our voice, so he would dig deeper. It was absolutely unthinkable that something bad could happen. I mean, Andrew was the healthiest one of the four of us in our family. Um, and after a while, and I couldn't for a million dollars tell you how long this took, they resuscitated Andrew. And uh, the doctor took us to an adjoining room and I said, is my son gonna be okay? And I don't know why I asked that question because Andrew was a beast. I knew he was gonna be okay. And the doctor looked at me and said, your son will not live through the night. And I kind of got my back up and I looked at him and I said, only God and Andrew knows. And we walked out of that room. My son went to the hospital that day, five feet, 10 inches tall, 135 pounds. By the time that day was over, Andrew weighed 
200 pounds. His body weight went up by 50%, 65 pounds for the fluid we had to pump into him to keep his blood pressure up to keep him alive. Most kids with cancer go in and out of the hospital. Andrew never left for 167 consecutive days, most in the PICU. Andrew had almost 50 operations. He had four strokes. He had a brain aneurysm. Believe it or not, on four separate occasions, they told us that my son wasn't gonna live through the day. And unfortunately, on July 14, 2007, after everything my heroic son went through, I watched my son, Andrew John McDonough, die in the arms of his 16-year-old sister. Um, I am both blessed to be Andrew and Allie's dad and Chris's husband, and I'm living my worst nightmare of something that happened to my son or my daughter. Two weeks before we went into the hospital, Andrew said to me, Dad, what's my blood type? And I didn't know. It turns out Andrew's blood type was B positive. And there's no connection to B positive and childhood cancer. So Allie started drawing posters on the hospital room door. Don't come into this room unless you're going to be positive. Because we didn't want doctors, nurses, OT, PT, respiratory to consciously or subconsciously give up on this boy that looked very sick in the bed. And we even taped a picture of our Andrew on the bed railing. So every day they would see that's the boy you're fighting for. And during the time we were in the hospital, we had over 900,000 hits on our website. And this was pre-Instagram and pre-Twitter and everything. Um, it, it became worldwide. We had, we had prayers inserted in the Western Wall in Jerusalem. We had candles lit at the Grotto at Notre Dame. Um, and so when Andrew passed away, um, when Andrew went to heaven, uh, with the blessing of my wife and daughter, we started the Andrew McDonough Be Positive Foundation to be a safety net for other families going through cancer battles. Well, it's, it's, boy, it's, it's very obvious why this cause is so important to you uh, and, uh, and how you've turned uh, what would be obviously a huge negative into something very positive, uh, being positive uh, and, and helping others. I'm specifically moved by, by your Be Positive Heroes. Can you share a little bit about this idea for getting kids involved and you know, where it originated from and share some stories and different experiences over the years? Sure. So, you know, we do if we do three things primarily. We we help families pay their bills when they're going through treatment because the income goes down, the expenses go up. We fund research, and then we're also busy in DC with advocacy. But with all of our activities, particularly on college and high school campuses around the country, I thought it would be neat to have kind of a big brother, big sister type program, and we call it the Be Positive Heroes program. So, for example, at the University of Delaware. We have 40 to 50 kids, be positive heroes, kids with cancer and their siblings, because we call the siblings the forgotten heroes. And we will pair, for example, the University of Delaware football team is paired with a little boy named Danny Feltwell. And Danny has his own locker in the locker room. He runs out through the inflatable helmet onto the field, which in the beginning, I got to tell you, scared the hell out of me because I thought these 350 pound linemen were going to run over him. But it, it is just become so amazing. I wanted to put the kids up there on the pedestal so that they'd forget their cancer for a little while, so that yeah. they'd forget, you know, uh, chemo and radiation and pick lines and intrathecal and, and all these things that a kid should not even be dealing with. And it has been a great experience. And what I didn't think or realize was how much of a life-changing experience it would be for the college kids. All of a sudden, that bad yeah. test grade or the job interview they didn't get or the roommate issue or the relationship issue doesn't seem so important 
when they right. think about, look at what Danny's going through. Well, look what Joey's going through. One little girl, she had a, she was battling a brain tumor. She had an older brother and always wanted to have a sister. And I said to her mom, how would she like to be paired with this sorority Delta Gamma? And so mom asked the little girl, how would you like to have 80 sisters? This little girl said to her mom, you're pregnant with 80 babies. <laughs> so we, we paired this little girl with Delta Gamma. They took her for manicures. They took her to the, they invited her to the sorority house. They had cookouts with her. They sent her notes, uh, you know, technology. And as she got older, their Instagram friends with her. And they just make these kids feel not so alone and they make them feel very special. So yeah, so what you, what you're describing here is uh, is really a two way impact. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you you came at this to impact kids that had the that had the the difficulties, but but really those kids are providing a very positive impact back the other direction as well, which is which is terrific. So besides besides the story about that little girl paired with eighty sisters, uh, over the years you've probably had many stories like that. Can you think of a another one or two moments that have just jumped out at you as Wow, this is why I've started this organization. This, this is this is why I'm here. Yeah, there, there, there's a boy named Christian, single mom, lived in New York City, and he was paired with ZBT at NYU. It was just beautiful how you know ZBT is a historically Jewish organization, and here's this Catholic Hispanic boy, and these guys are like family, and they're taking Christian around trick or treating in Manhattan, and they gave him a bid, which is a big deal in a fraternity. They made him a a brother, and they would visit him in the hospital. And when it came down to his final days of life, we got a call from the nurse and said, you know, two of the fraternity brothers are over here. You might want to ask them to leave because it's, it, it's, it's the end. And so we asked them to leave. And Louisa, Christian's mom said, no, 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 they're family. I want them here. And so on one side of the bed was Christian's mom, Louisa, on the other side of the bed, holding his hand, was two fraternity brothers from New York University. No blood relation, had didn't know him two years earlier, and they were there when he took his final breath. And this group of, you know, like I said, historically Jewish fraternity, that goes out to I think it was Brooklyn and attends his Catholic funeral because he was their brother. And on the composite, which is the big sheet of pictures of all the brothers, the top left is a little boy named Christian Velez Guzman. Joe, you, Thank you, um, for sharing. you 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 work with a lot of college students quite a bit, and um, and it's really pretty pretty amazing. You know, how did you come up with this great idea to empower these young people to to get them to work with you to fundraise on behalf of your cause? How did you how did this just come about? I mean. It's amazing. Uh, it's interesting. Years in, in my previous life, when I was working at a, at a credit card bank, um, I was interviewing candidates at Penn State University. I was just trying to break the ice with a candidate. She had this little dance marathon thing on her resume. And I said, so what is this, Don? And I wasn't only half listening. I thought she was going to say it raises, you know, $1,200 or something. And this was in the mid 90s. And she said, yeah, and it raises $1.6 million. And I was like, excuse me? And so from then on, I learned about what Thon at Penn State is. And they, they raised $13 million this year, just to put it in perspective. And I, and I always then look for students 
that were involved in THON when I would interview on campus. So I turned the calendar several years, Andrew passed away and I reached out to the Penn State folks, the, the, the guy who was in charge at that time. And I said, are you willing to give me some tips and advice? And he says, I'm only worried about Penn State. You can, you can go after the other 49 states in the country. And he literally sent me a 51 page manual and spent about an hour and a half on the phone with me. Mm. And I said, okay, that's how it started because I knew we wanted to help. I live in Wilmington, Delaware, very small place. You're only gonna be able to help so many people in the country if you're sourcing your revenue from Wilmington, Delaware. And I knew if we wanna be a national player, we have to source nationally as well. And that's why we have events at LMU in Los Angeles and the University of Texas in Austin and University of Alabama and Tuscaloosa and, and all around the country. So, well, okay. So clearly hooking up with, uh, with college and universities was a right path for you. And you had the manual, you got the manual, which is great. Um, talk to us about the very, very first steps so that people get a sense for where this grew from. Well, the very first early days with the University of Delaware are very much like the early days that we have today, 15 years later, with other schools that we're approaching. You know, we go onto a, onto a college campus and we try to connect with the students, oftentimes through Greek life, through the fraternities and sororities. Thankfully, the college students are so much more philanthropic than my generation was when I was in college. And we try to make that connection. Now, it's not easy. The students didn't go to college to save kids' lives. Is it something nice in the resume? Sure, but it's so much more than that. And when we find the student leaders and then we try to walk before they run. I mean, I have so many people come up to me and say, oh, you raised you know, over $2 million at the University of Delaware. You know, my charity, I wanna do that next year too. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I mean, it's like going up to somebody with a $20 million company and say, yeah, I wanna have that tomorrow. Yeah. So do I, and I want to not pay taxes and have sun every day and shoot a 68 when I golf. But there's a big difference between what you want and what you have to work towards to earn. And those early years, you know, University of Delaware, for example, first year was $25,000. And before the pandemic, U Dance, which is the, which is the event at the University of Delaware, was on track to reach $2.7 But it took a lot. I'm on campus a lot. I'm telling stories. I'm sharing stories about kids like Christian and and Kara, the little girl for Delta Gamma. And it's a lot of work. And you know what the thing that people don't understand that makes it more challenging? If you're a jeweler, for example, you build and cultivate your customer base and you want a customer for eight years and 10 years and 12 years and 15 years, a quarter of my partners leave every single year to something called graduation. But it's a different dynamic than if you were a baker or a jeweler or you have some yeah. other business like that. You know, like you said, working, you're working with these college students and, they, and they didn't, they, they're not fundraisers and um, you know, they didn't go to college to become fundraisers, at least some of them, most of them happen. Do you, do you find you need to give them guidance, advice when it comes to the fundraising? Sure. And then can you identify for the audience any ways that you have been successful in the past with the, this type of group? Yeah, absolutely. Their hearts are in the right place. They want to go. They have, they are the boots on the ground. We have the recipe for the cake. We know how to make it work. For example, I will frequently stand in front of a group of freshmen and I'll say, what does a fundraiser look like to you? 
And they'll say, well, we raised $250 for our band at our car wash. And like, okay, we'll take that and throw it out of your head because you put a dozen people at the car wash for six hours. That's 72 person hours. And you made $250 in 10 minutes. I could, I can, if you trust me, I can show you how you can raise 10 times that. And it's leveraging technology. It's, you know, we have a proprietary platform, but it's basically, I stand in front of a, an audience and I say, we wrote an email for you. Can you forward it out to 10 or 15 people? If you will, we win. Awareness is generated. Not every, do not every email comes back with a donation. You're not going to get to where you want to go on car washes. You know, it's incredible that you're working with such a large number of young people across the country and getting them excited about fundraising and, and truly giving back. I mean, it's a, it's a really new way of giving back. You're right. And the younger, you know, today's generation is very different than, a, you know, my generation was. But can you share any tips about getting these young donors excited about your cause? Well, I think there's, there's a very interesting um, point of differentiation that I need to make that some just for your listeners. Um, some people think when I say we raise, pick a number, $2 million at the University of Delaware, they think the students at the University of Delaware are giving us $2 million. That's not the case. They're not giving the money. And I always tell them, yeah. you want to skip a Starbucks and, and, and throw five bucks our way, wonderful. But it's really, they are the conduit to sending out the emails. The college students aren't so much the donors as the fundraisers. So when it comes to the fundraising aspect, how do you set goals for, let's say, students versus alumni? Yeah, so what we do is we, you know, if we take uh, New York University, we have a group of fraternities and sororities and non-Greeks, and, and they all have team pages, and we know what they raised last year, and we, just like anyone in business, you, you say, okay, well, I want to have a 15% increase or whatever the number you, you settle on. And then you chunk it up about what you have to do to get there. Send, you know, get 10 more people to send out emails and whatever the case. And competition's a great thing. You know, uh, AST sorority at NYU doesn't want to get beat by DeFi or AFI or, or whomever. And so it's fun. And I always tell them, this is healthy competition. This is not cutthroat, stab in the back competition. It's for the kids. We create these websites that are fun, competitive, even playing field and they, they go out, they use the websites, and they also do what's called canning. They, they, they stand on street corners with safety vests and, and collect money for kids with cancer. You know, I, uh, I love events. I love fundraising. I've been doing it for a lot of years. You've obviously been doing it for many, many, many years as well. Can you share with us a couple of your favorite fundraisers, something that really sticks out at you? It, it's interesting. We have a fundraiser in Wilmington, Delaware, that is not going to break the records on fundraising raises about five or $6,000, but it's so much fun. It's the Wilmington Police Department against the Wilmington Fire Department in a game of ice hockey. And boy, these guys go at it and then the, the, the punches get thrown and the crowd goes nuts. And it's just a fun, cool atmosphere. And we have Be Positive Heroes, kids with cancer dropping the puck on the ice. Do I like the $2 million one? Oh yeah, yeah, there's no question about it. We need that to fund the business. I love our 5K not because, you know, in the early years, it was a big percentage of our revenue. Now, not so much, but there's such a feeling of community fellowship there. It's not about your personal record. It's about seeing those children with cancer who I introduced on the steps of the school where my son attended and everyone shows, shows them love. 
And then there's another event. We have the University of Texas, which is just crazy. Uh, it's boxing matches between students. And I get into the ring between the sixth and seventh bout. And I'll tell you, it's a tough time to talk for about 60 seconds to a very, let's just say, well-refreshed crowd of about 1,200 people who are watching these boxing matches. And then a big performer will come on like Amigos or Juicy J or someone afterwards. Um, and I sit there, I, I stand there and I just shake my head and I look up and I'm, I say, Andrew, you never thought I was gonna be here, did you? It's a long way from when I stood in a department store and sold those hot dogs and made $170 and thought, wow, we are on the, we're on a mission here, we're rolling. What, what, what are some of the other events that you, you know, that you do besides well, those? I just got back from North Dakota where there's a group in North Dakota, they do major head shaves. We have a high whoa, end. Whoa, 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 whoa. And what? <laughs> whoa, don't go by that one that quick. Say that again. So they have 250 people that sit down and have their head shaved. And it's, it's a great event because a lot of the people will have their hair dyed beforehand. So there's different themes like pineapple or someone looks like a strawberry and, and they get money raised. And one of the guys is, is the local <laughs> bishop uh, of the Lutheran church. Another guy is a surgeon. Um, it, it's 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 hilarious, and and they they get their locks shorn. Do people pledge and, based on how many hairs are removed or anything like that, because because uh, I would, could make you a fortune. <laughs> that wouldn't be too good for me, uh, but fortunately, no. And then you know, COVID, COVID has been horrible for for yeah. fundraisers, of course. But in their good times, pre-COVID, they were. I think they were raising as much as $500,000. They would do like wow. 10 events around North Dakota. They had guns and hoses, which was the cops versus the firefighters and different things like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, nice. it's the, the, the head shaving is, is, is fun. And then there's another group, a high-end luxury magazine called Jet Set Magazine. They have a contest, a model contest, and 25% and of the net proceeds go to the Be Positive Foundation. And gentlemen... They just started a contest last year that you're welcome to enter. It's called Legendary Dad Bod Contest. And so, you know, take your shirts off and, uh, you know, enter the Legendary Dad Bod Contest and 75% of net proceeds will go to the Be Positive Foundation. Well, hold on a second. You're trying to raise money, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, coming up a little, little later in this podcast, we do a thing called uh, Ask the Maestro. And that's where people, you know, get a chance to submit questions and we try and, and answer them. But I'm going to get, put you on the spot now, Joe. I want you to give us from your expertise, a couple of your tips on having a successful fundraiser. I have a very large planning board group, one person, two people. It, it, you just, there's, there's just too much to do. Have realistic expectations. Put the, put the cause before the dollars. I know you want to raise, you know, $25,000 or whatever but make it such a great event that people say, damn, I'm going back to that next year. Great tip. Yeah, yeah great Jay, tip. thanks for that. That was really a, a great entree. You know, we spoke a lot about the events and about, you know, the college students um, and these wonderful ideas. Do you have strategies or practices you share that you could share with us about retaining those existing donors and reaching even new donors? And what's the strategy for you know, donor retention. Yeah, we actually have a pretty sophisticated strategy by charity standards. Uh, as I may have mentioned in my previous life, I worked at, at JP Morgan Chase and data segmentation, customer relationship management is very important. 
So I've tried to take that with us to the Be Positive Foundation. And so every donor that comes in gets tagged based on various criteria, amount of donation, how often they donate, different things like that. And then we push out various marketing communication based on what that tag is. And our goal is to convert event donors to non-event donors. And what I mean by that is, as I say, students, you know, are with us for four years and, you know, they're getting their grandmother or their mother or father to donate. Well, when, when Gabby graduates, I want Gabby's grandmother to continue to be with us. So there's a special message that will go out to Gabby's grandmother after she graduates saying, you know, in a nice way, stay with us. We still need you. Yeah, um, yeah. And so we've tried to be, and I'm not, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're anywhere nearly as sophisticated <laughs> as JP Morgan Chase or places like that. We're trying to segment our donors and speak to them appropriately. A lot of listeners that are with smaller nonprofits and they may be struggling a little bit. They may be, uh, you know, trying to get, get some solid ground. When you first set out to start this organization, you know, what were some of the first steps? What are some of the first things you did to make sure that, that the path you were on was going to be on the, on the right path and you wouldn't be either reinventing the wheel or having to start over again? Yeah, well, well the, the very first thing I did was we created a fund at the Delaware Community Foundation. There are community foundations all across the country. And if someone wants to start a charity, <clears throat> I always tell them, you don't have to necessarily go to the IRS and get your 501c3 and be dealing with accountants and lawyers and those kinds of things. You can go and I, I met with the head of the, the Delaware Community Foundation, signed a few forms. And that day, I was able to take tax deductible donations because you ride the coattail of their 501c3. You're under their I, umbrella. And, yeah, correct. Yeah. And then I concurrently applied for the 501c3 because I wanted to have complete flexibility of how we disperse our money. And, and, and ultimately that came along like about six months later. Um, but we were right out of the gate taking donations because we wanted to, um, I don't want this to sound crass, but I was warned that after my son died, people would eventually forget about him. And that the next year there might be an earthquake or there might be a, a war or, or something else. And they, people would move on to the next thing. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm not going to let that happen because it's not going it, to. Andrew's soul is in me every day and I, and I, I miss him dearly. I'm not going to let people forget him. And yeah. so we worked very hard from the jump to, to really make sure that, you know, we strike while the iron is hot. And we just keep keep going out there. You have incredible enthusiasm and passion. It's really like like you said, be positive. I, I I love it. Can you identify something that you're excited about for the future of Be Positive Foundation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have been embarking on a major expansion, and we just two months ago hired a gentleman who's going to be working in Boston. So we can really try to build out New England. And we just hired a person a, a month ago in San Diego to really build out the West Coast. Uh, we're going to be hiring someone in Austin. And so we're really building out the team. Uh, so we have more boots on the ground. And there's a ton of great childhood cancer research that needs to be funded. And there's a whole lot of families that, that need support as well. And, and thankfully, we, we, we recently came upon a, a donor through our event at NYU who is now um, 
going to literally be giving us millions of dollars to support our family assistance program. You you have talked about many highlights uh, throughout our, our podcast here. Um, we're kind of getting towards the end. I, I, I want you to help us with one, just, just one that you could share with our, our listeners, one uh, rewarding moment. Uh, we'll, we'll call it the, the pinnacle reward that says, aha, that's, that's why I did what I did. Six weeks ago, another charity reached out to me and said, there's this boy named Davi. Davi is five years old. He's from Brazil. He has an inoperable tumor that is terminal. He found a hospital in North Carolina that said they thought they could operate on it. So the family comes to North Carolina. The hospital says it was going to be $100,000, but they would discount it to $50,000. This family didn't have $50,000, but they still came anyway. And the hospital said, if you don't have the $50,000, on Friday, you get discharged. And this boy, Davi, would not see his first grade. And so between this other charity, us, and that one of the donors that I mentioned to you, we were able to work with the hospital. And we were on a Zoom with Davi's family the next day and said, guess what? Davi is going into surgery on Friday. I can't promise what's going to happen, but your little boy is going to get a chance at life. If somebody could have given my son that chance. And Davi went into surgery and they got the whole tumor. They got the whole tumor. The following Thursday, I got an email from Davi's dad. They were getting ready to be discharged. And this boy is expected to lead a normal, long life. And to be able to say that Be Positive Nation, our students and our head shavers and our yeah. boxers played a yeah. little role in keeping this kid alive. It's just, it, it gives me goosebumps when I retell it. Yeah, and that, and that is why... You do what you do, and you and your passion is obvious. And what what a marvelous story! Thank you for sharing that, Joe. Joe, you, you're you're touching a lot of hearts. I can yeah. tell you that. Yeah. What is something that you would like to surprise our listeners to find out about you? Well, people that know me, I'm 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 pretty much an open book. So what you see is what you get. Um, but I think what I will say it's a slightly different answer to your question. Um, <clears throat> for all the people that are listening, that either work for or are starting charities. Um, I have an opinion that a lot of people don't, and that is running a charity is absolutely running a business. I was interviewed one time and the reporter said to me, you consider this a business? I said, hell yes. It's smaller than the ones I ran at, at Chase, but this is a business. Donors have $1. Are they gonna give it to David? Are they gonna give it to Jay? Are they gonna give it to Joe? And we all have great causes. It's not that, you know, I'm, I, only have, I have the only good cause. So it is absolutely competitive and it is absolutely a business and you have to run it like a business if you want it to be around long-term. But well, I, I, I will tell you this, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm uh, in the choir because that's what I've been telling my auction clients for the last 32 years is that you don't throw a party and hope it makes money. You build a business and then you make it fun and you make it one that people want to come back to every time you are open for business. And, uh, and, and you have to, if you don't run your nonprofit as a business, then you will not be in business very long as a nonprofit. So one of the things that we'd like to finish is we'd like to ask a very simple question. That is, what question didn't we ask you, Joe, that you wish we had? <laughs> That's a good question. It's a question that I sometimes get asked that, uh, you could ask me is, do you think Andrew's proud of you? And well, my, you, you, you know, you know the answer to that. My, my answer is I sure hope so. Cause that is, that is what motivates me each and every day. Yeah. This is, 
this is my boy right here. And when I'm not on the road, I start and finish every day in his bedroom. I talk to my son all the time. He should be 29 years old now. He wasn't just my 14 year old son. He was my best friend. And I live to make Andrew and Chris and Allie proud. And these, these other kids, they're my bosses. They're, they're like nephews and nieces to me. They're, they're, they're family. These other be positive heroes. You have an amazing story. And uh, we very much appreciate you sharing that with us today. And we'll Thank be right you. back. We'll be right back after this. We are a team that has had an enduring influence on the nonprofit industry for more than three decades. We pride ourselves on developing and delivering technology with a purpose. Software born of a genuine understanding and passion for cause. We are relentlessly dedicated to our client's success. We are with our clients for good. We are Ariva, tech with purpose, driven by cause. Ariva is the trusted advisor and market leader of fundraising, donor relationship management, and auction software and services. Exceed further, our evolutionary all-in-one digital fundraising and donor relationship management software is helping nonprofits worldwide further their mission, transform fundraising, and cultivate relationships with donors and constituents. Our Maestro Auction virtual, live, and silent auction software, text-to-bid, virtual and mobile bidding software, and text-to-fund, text-based donation software are helping nonprofits raise billions of dollars through thousands of virtual fundraising events, charity auctions, and galas. Visit Ariva.com and reach out today and see how Ariva can help your nonprofit organization go further. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back. It's time for us to ask the Maestro segment where we take questions from you, our listeners, our first question comes from Michael. He asks, our board has a tendency of asking how we are expanding our outreach and programs, but aren't helping to drive new locations and development. How do we go about getting our boards more involved? You know, what I found from the staff is they may not be sharing the all the information that a board member may have. So if there's a tendency that they're hearing this about what are they doing more on outreach and programs, you know, they should be sharing more of that, whether it's, you know, email marketing campaigns, how their programs were, you know, prior to the previous board meeting, where their programs are today, um, how many people they've reached, how many donors they've, uh, new donors they've uh, acquired, uh, donor retention, maybe there was more statistics that they could provide. And I, and, you know, when you're a board member, you want to know that um, the organization is really progressing. And if it's an organization that is looking for new locations and more development, you know, I, I, I know, you know, sometimes leadership has a tendency uh, and, and I've sat there too, as, as a leader, you know, I, I want to wait till I get that final location and I, and I finalize that, or we, we've begun you know, that development program. And I, I think what's really helpful as a, as, a, a, as a leader in talking to your board is you can get more ideas out of it. So if you have a plan that you're talking about where there's potentially new locations or potentially new development, you should share that with your board. And they may have other ideas and maybe even how to get to that location faster or how to increase that development more. So the more you have your board engaged, the more that you share with them outside and, and, and you also got to just be listening. So if there's that tendency of them 
asking about outreach and programs and locations and development, that's the place where you, you do that during that board meeting. And you, and you historically show them, you know, more progression. I don't know, Joe, you know, with your organization, do you do, you do that with your staff, to, with your board? Yeah, I, I think your, your, your answer was spot on. I mean, I think the more educated your board is about your business and the challenges of it, um, the better their involvement, their questions are going to be. Every time we have new board members, of course, we hear the same, some of the same questions. Hey, have you ever looked at this? Yeah, we've looked at this 20 times and that's okay because they're, they're new. And putting the right people on the board, their heart's in the right place. They want to help. And that's why they're asking these questions. And you know, while I'm not going to say that you necessarily you lead the board or they lead you, it should be a partnership between you and the board. Yeah. And I really do. I, I love what you said. Uh, educating the board, I think you will also gain a lot of credibility and you'll weed out some of the some of the questions that are giving you pressure. Well, thank you both for that. Our next question on Ask the Maestro comes from Ronald. And he's asking about golf fundraisers. And uh, you came to the right place, Ronald, because that happens to be my specialty. So, <laughs> so there you go. He says, uh, about how much money should be should we be spending on our annual golf fundraiser? And that's sort of like one of those questions, like how high is up? Because really it depends on whether your annual golf fundraiser has 80 golfers, 144 golfers. Is it on one course? Is it on three courses? Um, you know, is it, is it a, is it a competitive tournament? Is it shotgun? Is it a, you know, is it designed to be uh, empowering? Is it designed to, to purely be raising money? Do you have sponsorship? So in other words, the point is there's a lot of different things that go into that quote budget. I would look at it more as a percentage as a, rather than as a dollar amount. Um, if you follow AFP guidelines, uh, typically uh, AFP says that you should be in the 20 to 25 percent uh, net to gross range. In other words, if you're going to raise hundred thousand dollars, a twenty to twenty-five thousand dollar budget is is not out of the question. Um, I think for golf tournaments, sometimes it's got to stretch a little bit more than that. But certainly, I would think if you're south of thirty percent, if you're somewhere twenty to thirty percent allocated towards your budget for the golf tournament, uh, that's that's appropriate. So set your goal. If your goal, whatever your goal is, look at about twenty to thirty percent and say, can we effectively raise this much money with that amount of budget? Now, the trap is you might think that, oh, well, we can get some of that underwritten. We can get some of the sponsors to cover some of those costs. You, you can, and you should, except that sponsorship money is income, underwriting money is income, and what they underwrite or what they sponsor is also a cost. So you're really not cheating the system, if you will, by getting something underwritten. You're just moving the dollars one side to the other. You still have two sides of the ledger. You have the income side and you have the expense side. And whether that income side is hard dollars you write checks for, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the expense side is hard dollars you write checks for, or it's something that is donated to you as an underwriting or sponsorship, it's still an expense and you should still allocate that in your budget and you should still come in in the 20 to 30% range. So hopefully that helps. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Joe. You are truly an amazing person. And, you know, I love hearing you speak about your son, Andrew, and the passion and the love that you're, you're, you're continuing in. And to hear your stories about the work that Be Positive is doing for the children's cancer research. It's, it's truly is my own personal motto to be positive. So mm -hmm. I want to encourage all of our listeners to be positive today and every day. 
Thank you to our fantastic sponsors, Arriva and Microsoft, who are leading the industry with the only all-in-one digital fundraising, donor relationship management, healthcare hospitality, and auction software. Till next time, everybody, make it a great day. Thank you.